Welcome to the Bible Inspectors Podcast, a secular and skeptical approach to finding answers to biblical questions. I am Tyler Owen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rick Johnson. Good day. And with us today is a new guest. Uh, we have the honor of hosting AJ Plummer. Hi, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, <laughs> figured I'd just share a little bit about myself since I'm a, I'm a guest on your show. But uh, as it relates to this pod- podcast, I was uh, heavily involved uh, with the Christian church throughout much of my childhood and spent many of my summers throughout middle high school and college attending and, in fact, working for a Christian church camp. Um, and then after graduating from college uh, with a degree in music education, I actually took on a position in a local church. Um, as their Christian education director and later as their executive director. But um, I've since left left the church and now actually work for a liberal arts college in the area. So enjoying that work and um, moving on to other things. But um, yeah, I serve on several nonprofit boards here in the area and I'm generally just a strong proponent for a secular society and maintaining a firm separation between church and state. But um, of particular interest, I guess, to me has been um, understanding the sociocultural and historical role that religion and its teachings have played in human society throughout time. So it's just a little bit about me. That's awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. And uh, today we've got a really great uh, Bible verse that we're going to cover that uh, you suggested, actually. And I'm really glad you did because it's a one of our first opportunities to... Uh, address an actual like narrative uh, format story from the Bible. And that story has a few characters that we're going to get introduced to with our new segment that we're going to call Get to Noah, Your Bible Characters. So, Rick, why don't you introduce us to our characters we're going to be talking about today? Okay, we have two characters that we're going to be looking at today. The first is Abraham. Uh, Abraham's probably familiar to many people who are familiar with the Bible. Abraham is viewed as the father of two of the monotheistic religions that came from the Middle East, Judaism and Islam. He is also viewed as a model of faith by Christians. He later marries Sarai, whose name will be changed to Sarah later, who is thought to be unable to have children. Abram travels with his wife and nephew Lot to the land of Canaan where they settle. A famine in that region forces them to move to Egypt, where they have a conflict with Pharaoh over Sarai, and results in them being forced to leave and return to Canaan. With both Abraham and Sarai in their 80s, and having been promised by God that his line would make many nations, his wife Sarai gives Abram a slave, Hagar, in hopes of impregnating her. Ishmael is the son of this union, and Abram's firstborn child. Conflict between Sarai and Hagar results in Hagar and Ishmael eventually being banished when Ishmael was in his early teens, after the birth of Isaac. At age 99, Abram's name was changed by God to Abraham, and his wife was renamed Sarah. At this point, the covenant between Abram's descendants was sealed with God through circumcision. Shortly after that, Sarah became pregnant with Isaac. Abram would later become involved in the matter of Sodom and Gomorrah, where his nephew Lot had settled. 
After the appearance of three angels of God to announce judgment on the cities, we have Abraham making the famous deal with the God's angels that if but ten righteous men could be found in that city, God would save the city. Not enough righteous men could be found, and after telling Lot and his family to leave, the wrath of God was released on those two cities. Abraham lived for another 75 years after the birth of Isaac. After the death of Sarah, he fathered several more children with a second wife, one of his concubines. The sons of this union would indeed become the heads of many nations in that region, and many of those nations would later be defeated by Israel. Our second character is Isaac, the son of Abraham. Not a lot in the Bible about him. Uh, Isaac is viewed as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. He was Abraham's second son and would eventually inherit most of Abraham's belongings and land. Isaac would have two sons, Esau and Jacob. And in his old age, his poor eyesight led to him being deceived by his younger son, Jacob, into giving his blessing of inheritance to him instead of to his elder son, Esau, the rightful heir. Wow, yeah, there's a lot of awesome information there about these two characters. Uh, any little piece of which would make a great uh, topic for our podcast, but uh, we we skipped over what is probably the most famous uh, instance between these two characters the uh, that is popularly titled The Binding of Isaac, and that is our main topic of discussion for today. And so, AJ, I'd love if you would uh, read for us the verses that cover uh, this story from the Bible. Yeah, I'm happy to. This is going to come from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and it's coming from the 22nd chapter, and we're going to read a rather sizable part of it, but uh, we wanted to give you the whole context. So this is verse 2 through 18. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. And what, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his th horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Wow, yeah, so this is a uh, a pretty uh, important moment in all of the Abrahamic religions. Um, it kind of is the beginning of their the promise of their prosperity. So, uh, AJ, why, why did you, uh, what brought your attention to this verse for our episode today? What was it about it that drew you to it? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting verse in and of itself. Um, you know, you have, you have a couple major characters in the overall lineage that Christians would trace to, to Jesus directly. Um, so it's uh, obviously of great import to the Judeo-Christian, uh, faith narrative, as well as, as their dogma and religions that have followed. But I mean, for me personally, this verse or these verses are really a strange story in all the collected Christian stories where uh, I feel like out of context, it's something that most Christians would not look down on as a um, an action of faith uh, for someone to willingly offer their own son as a sacrifice. And yet in this story, it's one of the most uh, important things that Abraham could do for God that would give him such blessing, uh, and uh, all of his family. So I, I'm really curious as to the, the, especially the transition from this being a story of the Jewish faith and how that transitioned into something important to the Christian faith. And I mean, that kind of goes along with just the whole transition from Old Testament uh, stories into the uh, revelation of the New Testament stories. But um, this story in particular, uh, Rick, for example, what what kind of uh, coverage would you see in your congregations as to uh, this story and how it was presented? Well, um, many Christians today, many Christian scholars, as well as the, the average lay people, look at Abraham as an exemplar of faith. Um, the example that he gives by not withholding his most precious uh, gift, so to speak, uh, the gift of the son, this promised son, the son that would ensure his inher- his descendancy uh, to, you know, the, the, the number of the grains of sand as unnum- innumerable. Um, to be able to give that up to God is an incredible example of faith in the eyes of Christians. Um, plus, from the apologist standpoint, you have a foretaste of the sacrifice of Jesus in this. You have a father giving up his son at the behest of God. Uh, that exemplar there uh, resonates with Christians. And as um, as Christian scholars look at the Old Testament for evidence of prophecies and foretastes of the coming of Christ, this stands out as a significant one. 
That's interesting. Now, are there uh, explicit references in the New Testament uh, referencing back to Abraham and Isaac in this story, or is it more of a, a thematic, uh, sacrificial um, kind of mirroring of the two stories? The faith of Abraham is directly referenced by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, by numerous people in the New Testament. It is, uh, it is a story that is accepted as a truth by those people. Yeah, it seems really foundational to uh, their, their cultural history, that this idea that they've all descended from someone who had to make this choice and was rewarded by God for their faith. Um, but kind of what I was referring to earlier about how uh, there's this, in, at least in my mind, this kind of separation um, of the content of the story and the um, moral of the story. Because I feel like if this if this particular tale were uh, a, a central um, theme in any other religion, I feel like there are Christians who would outwardly condemn it as being as a barbaric uh, demand of this God in the story. But uh, because it's such a central foundation to Judaism and in turn Christianity, uh, I feel like some of those problematic themes are skipped over. And I I mean, it's certainly not the first problematic theme we've uh, ran into in this podcast, but uh, this one's particularly interesting because it's a uh, a cultural story of an actual person. Yeah, that's a good point, Tyler. And, you know, specifically, I think what you know, what a lot of modern day Christians or, or, well, and hopefully people in general, <laughs> the, hopefully one of the main problems they would have, of, of course, in the story is, is, is this idea of child sacrifice and, and, and sacrificing a, a living, breathing human being um, literally on the altar of God as a, uh, mm-hmm. as a burnt offering, right? Um, and these, you know, it has the, the, this, this ceremony, this ritual of offering a burnt offering or, or, um, or a ritual sacrifice, it has very deep roots in human culture, it, especially at the time, um, at least to the best of our knowledge, most other religions had some other form of, of sacrifice inherent in their, um, in their, in their rituals and in their, their dogma at the time. And so, um, you know, certainly to a person, um, in Abraham's time, it wouldn't have been atypical to have, um, to have considered something like, like sacrificing one's own child or, or some other form of burnt offering. And it's interesting in that, you know, apologists and, and, and um, other biblical scholars, they, they have looked back on this um, through a couple different lenses. And there's been a few different, few different ways that, um, that folks have come to understand what this passage might be, might be telling us. So the first is, as alluded to, that, it's, that this was some sort of grandiose test of faith of Abraham, that God was testing mm-hmm. his faith to see how, how pious or how trusting he was of um, of God's instructions. And uh, another interpretation is that, um, that God was doing this, um, as a, as a smiteful God, as, as is often seen other places in the old Testament, that he was doing it in, in order to punish, um, mm-hmm. punish Abraham for the banishment of Ishmael, his, his, his natural born first son to his, um, to his concubine Hagar. Um, of course the third, the third option is that the the incident, you know, it really sets Judeo, the Judeo-Christian God apart, as I was alluding to, from the other gods of the times, um, by shirking the expectations to sacrifice the firstborn son. So because Abraham didn't go through with sacrificing his son, it was, it was a, a way for the Judeo-Christian God to, 
to um, to essentially point himself out and say, I am the true God, and we are no longer going to do this. So that's that's a third way of understanding this in a, in a broader context. So obviously this isn't the only story in the Bible that centers around the themes of sacrifice. Um, now, with the 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 context of this story being where God is specifically asking someone to sacrifice their own son, uh, is that is that at all um, referenced elsewhere as uh, something that was typical? Was it and and there's a couple different options there. It, was it something that people did because they thought it's what the gods wanted, or? Was it something that at any other point in time or in the the biblical narrative that uh, God would ask this of his followers? Or is this the the only example we have of of the specific uh, God asking someone to do something like this? Well, later on in the uh, Old Testament, you're going to have uh, the deliverance of the law. Um, Ten Commandments, you're going to have the institution of the priestly class, and then you will have an institution of the tabernacle, which is a, a, a mobile temple that the Israelites will take with them. And in that setting, in the setting of the tabernacle, the priests will conduct blood sacrifices of animals, not humans. Um, when Adam and Eve fell from dis the disgrace in the Garden of Eden. Um, God's pronouncement was at that time that they would surely die. So the theme of a death requirement for the sin of humans was set very early on. Um, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe this is the first instance where God specifically requires a sacrifice. Obviously, he he makes a he makes a, uh, a ram appear, and uh, the child is spared. But I believe this is the first time that God specifically asks for blood to be shed at His command. Um, and again, that can be seen maybe as a foretaste of the sacrificial law being set later on, and the ritual sacrifice in the tabernacle, and later on in the temple. So there are a few different ways that this. Uh, can be interpreted. Obviously, Christians are going to look at it as a really powerful example of placing all of your faith in God, despite whatever he might ask of you. Um, but from a secular perspective, what are some of the ways that, uh, that theologians and philosophers look at this story uh, to rationalize why something like this, uh, I mean, admittedly, fairly barbaric would be put in uh, a, a religious text? Is is it possible, would one of the explanations be that um, this was a way to create a rule amongst their people that we should no longer be doing these barbaric things? Um, and then they're just attributing a divine uh, origin for that belief that that should no longer be the case. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a possibility, Tyler. And I, I do want to just emphasize again what, what Rick shared is that this was um, you know, this was really a divergence from from human sacrifice, and 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 really the first time, at least in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, where God directly asked for a human sacrifice. But it was a, but but from then on, he you know the 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 Jewish religion continued with animal sacrifice. So sacrifice was was always was always a part of of what was going on, and and part of the religious milieu of the time. It's um it, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Part of the reason, um, just in in my own research that I was doing on this topic, that um, but part of the reason why sacrifice isn't even 
isn't even um, is not used today is um, is primarily as a result of the destruction of the of the temple in in the holy city. So so there was a requirement that even animal sacrifices had to be done in this in this very special place under this under very certain circumstances. So there was there was ritual and there was a, a, a deep cultural heritage, if you will in terms of how, how they would approach this. And, and so since that temple no longer exists, um, those, those animal sacrifices have ceased to exist. I think there are, I, I don't think I would be going out on a limb to say that I think there are some Orthodox, um, um, there, there's an Orthodox faction of the Judeo um, tradition that would like to see, obviously, the temple rebuilt and then potentially even animal sacrifices resumed. So there, there, as a matter of fact, there have been a group... A couple of groups in Jerusalem who regularly return to the Wailing Wall, the, the site of the old temple, and attempt to establish sac- uh, animal sacrifices there. They get arrested and hauled off. Uh, from my perspective, as someone who is not a Bible-believing Christian, it it really, there's many examples throughout the Bible that I feel we can point to and say that this was a response to the changing of the culture rather than the impetus that caused the culture to change. And I, that's why I, I posed the question, because in, in so many cases, even up into to modern day, in just our, our last episode, we talked about slavery and how uh, the, the debate at the time was there were people on both sides of the argument who were supporting their uh, beliefs with biblical uh, verse, where the the condemnation of something that's uh, culturally determined to be problematic or barbaric or uh, something that they no longer feel is necessary, there's this effort to to reframe it and say, well, we're changing it because God says so, not because uh, we've decided that it's wrong. Uh, when in reality, I mean, if we assume, if we if we take the the step back and assume from a secular perspective that that uh, that divine impetus is not uh, real or is not uh, proven, that we can say, well, this is actually just them attributing uh, the the new cultural standard where everyone has determined this is a, a negative impact on society, and and just attributing that to some divine source. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I mean, I think, I think probably, probably what it like most of these, uh, you know, very old, old beliefs, what ended hap- up happening is as the as the culture changed around them that, you know, the beliefs uh, eventually changed to reflect that as well. Now, you know, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg. What, you know, was it was was if we take this literally was Abraham the trendsetter in this regard and thereby the, the Judeo Christian right. God, the trendsetter, or was the culture already changing? And then this was actually. Um, you know, a, a, a person's attempt to, to, to keep current, if you will. Um, but it is interesting right. because, you know, over time, even even as sacrifice fell out of um, human and otherwise um, fell out of fashion, um, this this notion of dedicating your firstborn to God has really remained even even up through the Middle Ages. It was not uncommon for the firstborn of, of powerful families to go to go into the clergy and be and be part of uh, of a religious order. And so so this idea of the firstborn within a family being dedicated to God has been one that that has maintained through the centuries as well. Yeah, I'd like to uh, move on to some of the other implications that this story raises. Um, and the one that 
I come back to every time I hear this story is the idea of whether or not it's possible for God to lie or deceive. And I wonder what kind of other um, kind of ripple effects that has for the general Christian theology and or what other instances we have in the Bible where uh, God would tell his followers one thing and then either change his mind or reveal his true intent. And, uh, and what what kind of uh, implications does that raise for uh, Abraham in this story and all of God's followers, really? Well, if you interpret it as God lying and then playing a gotcha game, um, it you know it, it undermines this uh, the concept of it being a faithful person following God's orders, and it turns him into a fool being deceived by God. Um, that's the practical outcome of it. Um, we have uh, we have some other instances of this in Scripture where God would uh, lead uh, would make a statement to an individual, and then later on it was not the case. The, the mo- one that is uh, most often pointed to is the um, the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Um, if you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. Well, if you presume that Adam and Eve were going to be immortal prior to the eating of the fruit, then yes, their fruit brought about an eventual death. But grabbing the fruit and eating it, they did not keel over at that point. They did not fall over dead. Um, in some respects, the serpent was correct. They did not surely die. Um, so the, the, the concept of, of God initiating a deceit for the purpose of testing the faithful, um, you see that even in today, um, where people are uh, looking at the world around them. For example, uh, the concept of creation. Uh, they look at the evidence for evolution, they look at the scientific storyline for evolution, and they say that's simply God testing us, just as he tested Abraham. He's laying a story out from us, and we are told that we are to keep our eyes on the Lord. So you can say that the deceit of Abraham, the testing of Abraham, is you know very much rippling in the present time. Yeah, I feel like the in order for that interpretation to have weight to me, it requires the understanding that this is something that God would ask of one of his followers, at least at that time, you know, de- depending on whether what other uh, theological implications you want to pull from the remainder of the, the text in the New Testament and how God changed his covenant with his people, uh, that being set aside, in order for this particular story to work, it requires Abraham to believe that this is something God would ask and that he would expect it to be done. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know, I guess I don't really know what, um, what kind of real, uh, weight that would have had for the people of the time who were hearing this story. But, uh, I, it feels like yet another example of the, a God of fear and, um, you know, instilling fear into his people through like genocide or killing. Uh, so what, what do you guys think of this idea that, uh, the, at least the God in this story, that is something he would ask. Uh, and then in this case, it was an exception to that reality. Well, even 
from a from a modern Christian standpoint, the main concepts that are taught about trusting God is to trust God completely and lean not on our own understanding. So you have Abraham being asked to sacrifice the promised child, the firstborn son who was going to be the gateway through which the promise of God was given. Abraham's simple obedience is not viewed as a cultural conundrum or any kind of an inconsistent statement. It is viewed as the perfect belief of an innocent, godly heart. That's how it's preached in today's churches. So that you have that circular reasoning, if you will. You don't need to understand the cultural context of which this is in. The questions of whether we are... uh, ending human sacrifice or appending to it or starting it are truly separate. It is the pure faith in God that is that is the core of this uh, story, and that is how it is preached in today's churches. This was part of the problem that, that I found myself running into, you know, as I was going through my own transitions, I guess, in, in faith, in that these are, th- th- there are tough questions that, that really should, and rightly so, that you're doing, Tyler, that, that should be asked of this, this particular story. And, and there aren't often good answers that are provided by, by the church for why these, uh, why these circumstances happen. I, I, I found often in these, in these sort of circumstances where, where it seemed like God was coming across one way, and a person would say, well, that doesn't seem very godlike or very Christian or, or whatever one might, right. one might respond with. And they would say, well, there's, you know, there's a greater plan or there's, there's a, there's a grander plan and and you just have to, you have to trust in God as, as Rick was, was pointing to. And I, I found that problematic for, for a few reasons. Uh, First off, and in, in this particular instance, if God, if God chose the lie, okay, obviously that doesn't make God a perfect being. Right. The, the, mm-hmm. we, we would I think I think many of us would would view a lie as, as some sort of imperfection. Right. Um, and, and it's hard for us to understand why a, you know, gracious, loving, you know, insert um, some sort of platitude here. Um, God would 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 want would want to lie. And, and the answer of, well, it's part of a grander plan isn't isn't a particularly helpful answer to that. OK. The other option is that he can't lie. Okay. And so we need to take this story at face value and he wasn't lying and he really wanted, um, Abraham to, to kill his son. Well, if, if that were the case, then that makes him rather cruel. And also secondarily, it doesn't make him omniscient and omnipotent, right? He's, he's not all powerful if that's the case, because he can't lie. There's something he can't do. Right. Why would he give his, uh, why would he allow one of his followers to go through the the anguish of that experience, uh, thinking that's what he actually wanted of him, right? If he was an all loving, all caring God. Uh, but you know, on a, on a similar, on the other hand though, I have a lot of Christians even today who would tell me that this is exactly the kind of God that, uh, that we are all under that, uh, the idea that, God is all loving and all caring is actually heretical that this is that God was a, a jealous God and a wrathful God. And they, they have a very uh, literal interpretation of many of these passages and that they, they find really no issue with that, uh, the idea that, 
that con- discordance that we have, uh, you know, both you and I, I think we kind of shared that growing up, this idea that why would God ask something of us like this, when for them, they, they fall back on just the idea that God knows better than us, and it's not at all contradictory to his nature to ask us to do something that we, at face value, would seem uh, to be uh, immoral. Well, you also have this concept of uh, dispensationalism, um, which essentially says there are different eras in which God is dealing with human beings. Um, the major breaking point is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That That is the absolute fissure that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. In Christian theology, in in modern Christian theology, that death, burial, and resurrection ended the need for blood sacrifices, ended the need for the temple, ended the need for priestly intervention, and opened up a pathway for us to approach God directly. That is a filter that allows modern Christians to filter out a lot of the mind-numbing inconsistencies that these stories raise. Because they say, well, that's Old Testament. That's the Old Testament law. That's how God dealt with humans in the Old Testament. We are under grace, and under grace we don't need to worry about that. So it, it, it is a comforting filter that allows you to not worry about the inconsistencies, not worry about the contradictions, and simply focus on the grace. Yeah, I, I really, I, I've been perplexed by uh, this being a, a great example of the, the problem of where morality comes from. Um, and this story is a good one to point to when you're asking believers to explain this concept, because the problem becomes, do, does goodness or morality come from a inherentness that is, uh, identifiable in each of us, or does God choose what is good and can he change what is good and what is bad uh, at will, essentially. For So for him, if he had asked Abraham to follow through with this and kill his own son, would that have been good just because he said it is? If uh, God asked one of us today to do something that uh, in other passages in the Bible he condemns, would we have to do it because he told us to because everything he says is good so what what where do we grapple with that distinction of uh of whether or not to how we determine what is good and what is not i certainly think there are people in the world and there are certainly believers who would say yeah if if god walked up to you tomorrow and said do this then you should do it regardless of whether or not you understand that um, obviously, that's not the that's not the tradition that I come come from, and um, certainly um, I would find any sort of edict from on high in, in in such a vein to be very difficult to follow through on. Well, uh, another way to phrase that to Christians: if you saw an individual walking down the street with wood, with a son that was next to him holding some wood, and they had some fire with them. You stop and talk to them, and the guy says, oh, God told me that to go out here to the park, build a fire, and sacrifice my son on it. Would you accept that God had spoken to that man? Or would you call the police and try to restrain him and hope that he didn't, you know, unleash something on you while he was doing that? 
I'm, you know, myself, I would view the person as obviously insane, and I would try to either restrain him, calm him down, get him stopped, while I called 911, and hopefully we could intervene and save the child's life. And I think most Christians would probably react the same way you would. Exactly. I think it's almost universal that humans would react that way. And yet, these same rational Christians who would stop somebody from doing that today seem to have no issue with accepting that was the way things were done back then, and Abraham is a really strong man of faith for having done it. Yeah, and you've you've touched on one of the next points I wanted to bring up, and that is uh, how can we, if we're going to accept that that God determines what is right and wrong through you know through revelation or can change what is right and wrong at will, how how are we able to differentiate the voice of God from our own internal voice uh, with our human propensity towards imperfection, uh, mental illness. Uh, there are all sorts of ways and all many, many examples throughout even just the last few years of individuals who said they, they heard God's voice and almost exactly uh, mirroring this story were told to kill their own children and in some cases su- succeeding. Um, and I, I'm curious if there's a, um, from either of your past traditions, what are are there good answers for this question? Like, what what is the the Christian response to the problem of differentiating the voice of God from our own internal voice? In the traditions that I'm familiar with, coming out of, when you hear the voice of God, you have several things you can check it against. First, check it against others in your church. Share it with them. Um, there's the belief that if God is speaking to one, it will not be in isolation. It will be confirmed by others in the congregation. You can speak to your religious leader. But ultimately, in the Protestant traditions that I was brought up in, there is this concept of sola scriptura. Only scripture is authoritative. So therefore, you go to scripture you look at scripture and you see if what is your what you're being told contradicts anything in scripture if it does then it's not of god but we also have this this idea again going back to dispensationalism that at the sacrifice of uh of christ that opened up a time when the holy spirit could then shortly after on pentecost come as the um um, interpreter, so to speak, for God in our hearts. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's presence in your hearts, the scripture. You really don't need God speaking directly in your mind. Now, that begs the question, well, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? Um, and ultimately, that boils down to, in essence, whether you agree with the statement or not. It comes down to personal bias. Uh, Son of Sam, for example, uh, heard that, you know, God through the, was it a dog, I believe, a pet was speaking to him, that he should go and kill. Well, most people would say, that's terrible, that's terrible, we shouldn't do it. But when the President of the United States says God told him to invade Iraq, you have Christians who sit there and go, yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, I remember actually there is a, a quote from a comedian, I think, around that time who said, 
when uh, when one of our leaders says that God spoke to him, uh, we accept it without issue. But when if someone were to say that God spoke to them through their shoe, we would think they were insane. Um, so it's this this fine line of acceptability and and kind of going back to what you're saying about differentiating. Um, I know at least recently I've heard the blanket response from Christians that uh, the age of revelation is completely over and that anyone who claims to hear the voice of God or direct revelation is a heretic and that they, they're, uh, that God, God's word is fully revealed through the Bible and that there is no further revelation until the time of, uh, judgment. And so it seems like a very convenient way of getting around the, the issue of somehow confirming the, uh, the veracity of these ancient claims of God speaking to his people. If, if we're now thousands of years removed from those revelations, uh, what what really do we have to go on other than these ancient writings retelling those tales? Yeah, I think um, I think I'm in agreement with Rick that most of the most of the faith traditions that I'm familiar with, uh, you know, most of this comes down to a community, right? That you're that you're called into a community with other people. You're called into a community with fellow believers. And so you would check all of these personal beliefs and all of these uh, interpretations against against one another. For, for instance, the particular Protestant denomination that I came from, the, the, the proclamation of scripture was central because interpreting scripture was a communal activity. So if one person said, well, I think that means this, and the other 99% say, no, it doesn't mean that, then, then the majority in essence wins out in that, in that particular instance. And so there was, there was a, an, an inherent reason for why reading scripture aloud is, is uh, part of the fabric of that particular denominational tradition. I wonder if maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to uh, get some further context into what the result of this uh, story was and where it uh, where it left off Abraham and, and how how specifically he was rewarded through this act. Because um, I'm sure that in future episodes that he'll, he'll be another character we talk about again. So it might be good to have some of that context. Well, obviously, you know, Abraham is rewarded um, by ha- uh, having the fulfillment of God's promise in his son. And as the angel says, his only son, which, you know, effectively locks uh, um, the firstborn, Ishmael, out of the picture completely. And that comes back later on, uh, because Ishmael will be a character that uh, is involved in the... Uh, the storyline later on. But um, with this event, Abraham uh, becomes effectively the touchstone for, uh, for judging uh, a faithful follower of God. Um, and that is the exemplar that is set for the Jewish faith. And even for the Muslim faith, they look back upon Abraham and his, uh, his choice to uh, offer up his son. Uh, they look upon that as a, as a sign of incredible faith and a, as something they should wish to emulate in uh, their following of uh, Allah. So I think it's also important to note just the the historical uh, the historical framing for stories like these and how they're passed down through generations and eventually written into religious texts and and that is to say that we have no way of really knowing if the Abraham of the story uh, was an actual historical figure or an amalgamation of 
different uh, traditions and different individuals or or if it was simply a, a, an invention whole cloth where uh, the people are writing down moralistic stories that um, they wanted to instill in a, a historical framing so that it felt more impactful, perhaps. I mean, there's many, many different ways to explain uh, the origins of this story since we, we really have no historical evidence to support the character or the, the, this particular story. Um, so I think that that's important as we, especially as we go through the, the timeline of the Bible, where from these very ancient figures who were uh, at the very beginnings of Judaism, all the way up to, to individuals like Paul, who have much, much more historical evidence to support their existence and their influence on the culture and uh, the nations of the time. So um, Abraham in specific is one that we have scant, if any, true understanding of uh, who he was or uh, even if he actually existed. So um, looking at it from that perspective, I think it's much easier, at least for those of us who who don't have a um, literal interpretation of the Bible, to dismiss this as a cultural story, um, something with admitted in very important implications for the people who would follow this uh, deity, but um, something that I think is just as easily dismissed by those who reject the idea of the Bible being a revelation from God. Yeah, and I'll just throw something out for your listeners if they if they are interested in pursuing the the sociocultural aspect of, of sacrifice a little bit further. We didn't get into it much today. Um, just go to Wikipedia and check out, um, there was a French historian and philosopher named René Girard, and he he created a, a, a theory called mimetic theory, which is essentially that that we, we derive all desire, internal desire, from essentially mirroring others. So, um, and he goes so far as to say that's, that sacrifice is one of those things that we, um, that, that, that essentially has, has become part of the fabric of society, um, ancient society, as a result of, of mirroring one another and, and, and the necessity to create a scapegoat. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I, uh, I definitely suggest you look, at it, look him up, René Girard, and um, it's a, he's an interesting read. Cool. Well, the Bible is supposed to have answers, but I think we all still have some questions. But until next time, Rick, is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, I've taken a little bit of a summer hiatus from it, but I do have a blog um, at rjohnson.us that's entitled Tugging on Superman's Cape, uh, where I explore a variety of issues, uh, things that people might find that follow this blog might find uh, interest. AJ, is there anything that you would like to plug or talk about? Yeah, well, you can find me on on all the usual social media haunts. I'm on Facebook and uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle, Twitter, my Twitter handle is at aj underscore plumber. Um, I also have a website. I'm a pretty active musician in the Eastern Iowa area, so you can check out my my website. That's ajplumbermusic.com. Um, I put my performance schedule up there, and so if you're interested, you're welcome to check it out. Awesome. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at Tyler Owen. For more Bible questions, debates, and articles, make sure to visit our website, BibleInspectors.com. There you will also find links to our Facebook and Twitter accounts to get the latest updates. You can submit your questions or comments to BibleInspectors at gmail.com. 
We would also love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play, and please tell a friend about the show. So now, Rick, would you like to sign us off with a quote? Our quote is from Voltaire. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Atrocities.